Ramble. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. I'm Josh Peck. You are the listener, and here we go again in this little dance. And I'm not sure who's leading. No, let's be honest. I'm leading. You're just listening. I'm. This is all. This is a completely one-sided relationship, and yet I appreciate you because I couldn't do what I do without you. I really, I just couldn't. I'd be a sad man alone with his thoughts, a microphone fucking connected to nothing with like a weird shoddy cord coming from one end of the microphone and then you sort of like the camera follows to the end of it and it's just like weird metal like insides of the mic cable pointing out, you know? And you're like, oh, this guy's crazy. That would be me. But no, I've got a moderately, mildly successful podcast. Jesus. Wow. You know what? That's why we tune in for the Curious Podcast because it's raw and uncut. You know, normally people would cut that out. Me having a complete moment of just throat uh, fuckery. But not here. Not a Curious. We leave it all in for better or for worse. Um... What's going on? Former President George H.W. Bush has passed away. God bless him. What a guy. What a funeral. I found myself having a lot of funeral envy watching that. I mean, sheesh. The pomp and circumstance of it all. It was incredible. I mean, he deserved it. What a guy. But me, I'm very worried that my funeral is going to just pale in comparison. Because I want that. I want former and current presidents at my funeral. I want soldiers in just various regalia. I'm talking Navy. You know, we'll, Army, we're even going to invite the Coast Guard. All right? They can come too. And I just, you know, would I hate if a couple F-14s flew over my funeral like it was the fucking Super Bowl? No. You know? I want I want it to be an event. I don't want people sobbing. You know what I mean? A couple people is nice. Maybe one or two people try to, you know, jump in as they lower my casket into the ground. Because they're so bereaved. They're tearing their clothes off. Why? How? Not the people I love. Not the people that matter to me who I genuinely don't want to be upset when I eventually go. But like, you know, a couple of the riffraff. A couple like random twice removed friends who are just dramatic. You know, want to act like they knew me better than they really did. So maybe they'll put a, sh- you know, make a bit of a show of it. But sheesh, I don't know. I'm not much for funerals. God, who is? You know what I love? A good funeral. Can you believe the spread that Jerry had? <laughs> I wish he'd pass away more often. Am I right? <laughs> oh my God. Look, it's not a negative thing that there's a nice spread. At uh, most funerals, Jewish funerals, oh my God, deli trays for days. It's like a thing. People send them. I'm talking various smoked salmons, some roast beef, some pastrami, nice, you know, bagel tray. The Irish do it up well too. They just drink throughout the entire thing, like before, possibly during. You know, Uncle Rick's over to the side taking a quick swifty off his flask. You know that. Maybe even the priest is taking a couple pulls in the rectory. Who knows? You know what I mean? And then after, it's done. You know, they just, they're cheers in you until they can't see straight. And I don't hate that. I actually, I mean, I don't drink myself, but if I did, 
I think toasting a loved one as they move on to whatever they're moving on to ain't a bad thing, you know? There are very few sort of worthwhile reasons to get utterly and completely repugnantly shithoused in this life. And I think honoring a loved one who's passed is appropriate. Yeah, I just do. But, yeah, I don't know. Do we go anywhere? I doubt it. And I believe in God. I'm just not quite sure that the angels are waiting for me. I think it's kind of just, that's it. And that's all right with me. Life is long. You know, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh my God, I got to find that magic elixir that allows me to live another 500 years. It's like, really? See, I can see just the earth get slowly hotter and like the next 11 sort of incarnations of the new Kardashians, whatever that looks like, and they eventually become the royal family and rule the world. No shade on the Kardashians. I've actually heard Kim is lovely. I'm a little annoyed with Kanye, but listen, you don't tune in for this. To hear me talking about Kanye West, Kanye West got bigger problems than Josh Peck's approval on his curious podcast that's mildly successful. Kanye's doing just fine without me. He's got a sneaker. I actually tried on the Yeezy, his shoe, the other day, and not for me. I did. I had one of those moments where I looked at myself in the mirror at 32 years old, and I was like, am I this guy? Am I the 32-year-old with the Yeezys and the appropriate pants and, you know, just regular guy shirt? I don't think I'm that guy. I'm not that fashion forward. I want to be Pharrell, who's like... Literally, I assume in his mid-40s, looking like he's 25 and can, you know, wear a tuxedo with shorts and looks incredible. But I have to reconcile the fact that I'm probably never going to be as cool as that. And that's fine. You know, you learn that as you get older. That some people are born to be cool. But mostly, but mostly not. Am I going to be the old guy wearing like the fucking chunky white New Balances or the white Nike Air Monarchs with a polo shirt and cargo shorts? I don't think I'm that guy either. I think there's a good chance I might be somewhat cooler than that dude. But much respect to that guy. I assume his name's Gary or Mitch or Don. Um, But I'm sure that guy's great. I'm sure he, you know, doesn't worry about his diet much enjoys himself some like a pork chop. I don't think I've ever ordered a pork chop because it just seems so masculine. And uh, yeah, I, I'm more of a chicken Caesar type, but, but that's me. Um, what else? What else is going on in the world? You guys would love the scene that's going on as I record this because I'm sitting in my car because I do this mobily because I never actually record these things in time. And my poor engineer slash producer, Kevin, has to cut this in at ungodly hours. Sorry again, Kevin. Get excited for that Nordstrom gift certificate. It's coming. Trust you me. It is coming. Um, but yeah, anything else going on in my life? Anything else worth... Worth sharing? I'm just not not particularly sure. You know, I got this kid on the way, which I'm all the emotions about uh, for. What? I'm, I'm feeling everything. I'm excited. I'm incredibly nervous. I'm anticipatory. I'm in anticipation of the upcoming disruption to my life. But it's a welcome disruption. And the truth is, how, I mean, how much more of me could I stand? 
I mean, what what's the alternative that I lived another, you know, 20 years without kids and it's just more me alone in my car recording podcast intros and going to the gym and deciding whether or not it's like a Panda Express or a Chipotle night? That's not interesting. No one wants to watch that movie. But, you know, a lovely woman marrying sort of a, a okay guy and then procreating to have a, a beautiful child. Uh, someone might want to watch that. I don't know who that someone is. Probably not a good friend of mine, but uh, someone might tune in for that show. You know what I mean? It's got a, we got a lot to offer. Anyway, on today's show, Ryan Holiday. Ryan and I have known each other for over 10 years, but I didn't know it because we had only spent about an hour together when I was 21. And then 10 years later, when I was starting this podcast, I thought, who would I love to interview? And of course, Ryan was on the top of my list because I loved his books like Trust Me, I'm Lying, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, and much more. And I reached out to him and he said, hey, idiot, we know each other. And I was like, of course we do. And now we have become good buddies. There's really no one like him. He's one of the smartest guys that I know. He's an author, marketer, entrepreneur, media strategist, uh, formerly director of marketing at American Apparel. And now he is just my pal, my buddy Ryan. Uh, Sit back. Enjoy. Okay, bye. Intro over. Enjoy, Ryan. Bong bong. Wait, so we were just talking about how you are possibly ghostwriting a book for Lance Armstrong? Yeah, we've been talking about doing a book together for like a a year, year and a half, sort of based on his podcast, but then also based on on his life experiences. So we'll we'll see. I mean, I would love to do it. I mean, I I guess because you're writing the book, maybe you can, maybe you can't say, but after listening to him in length on his pod and... I don't know who was talking, maybe it was Bill Burr has a great stand-up bit about it, Yeah. but I just feel like he got a fucking raw deal as far as the per- the, his persona. Yeah, I mean, a raw deal in the sense that the public projected a sense of heroism on him, and then that, that probably was more than it needed to be. And then, like, a villainy on him that was more than it needed to be yes. when he was, like, the same person the whole time. So I, I definitely agree with that. To me, what's fascinating about him is that he has just gone through on a larger scale what every person goes through, which is that you're going through life, and then it just all goes to shit. Not because, like, some totally... Un- it's not like... You know, it's not like Lance Armstrong's life was amazing and then he got hit by an asteroid. It was like totally self-inflicted, right? And like that's what happens to everyone, right? Like somebody has an affair or they get a DUI or they blow up their business or you know what I mean? Like it's just like everyone goes through getting knocked on their ass and he just went through it at like an epic, at, at the level of like a Greek tragedy. Do you know what I mean? Where he was like everyone's hero and then... He was literally banned from sports. Do you think that it's our inability to reconcile these, you know, people like Lance and uh, people of that level, athletes, actors, politicians, you know, they're modern day aristocracy, right? Yeah. And it's our inability in which to reconcile that they too may be human. That's def- that's definitely a huge part of it, I think. Um, 
And then I, I think we also, they are human, but then also we forget that you don't become that without, un, without there being sort of power and machinations. And you, like, you don't become the best in the world at what you do without like uh, stepping on a few necks, you know, like, like sure. you have to, like, you have to have a killer instinct, you know, and, and so that, that means there's like people along the way that are not going to be happy with you. And so we, I, I, I think we tend to, um, we tend to think that, that people up at that level, we, we forget that they're sharks, like that Elon Musk seems like your friend, but is actually like a ruthless billionaire. You know, oh, totally. And and so and then other people we think are like horrible people. Like we, we like we, we make like, you know, um, Donald Trump's a bad example. But there's other rich people who are just like, that's a bad rich person. And this other one, they're good. But it's like actually to get to that level, you, you have to have the same killer instinct. And and also like an ability in which to deal with the idea of. You know, I was. It's funny. I interviewed Nick Bilton the yeah. other day, uh -huh. and you know, he just done so much reporting on people like Zuckerberg and Musk and whatnot, and and he just said how, you know, like Steve Jobs understood that people killing themselves at sweatshops in China or what have you, or factories where they made the iPhone or whatever you yeah. know instrument they were making, that was just a part of doing business. It was a cost of business. Yeah. Whereas some of us would would fold at the idea of that. Yeah, that's why we like like an okay, if you're Elon Musk or if I'm Elon Musk and I help create PayPal and I get like 50 or 100 million dollars, I'm done. I'm not like, "Hey, I'm going to start another insane company and then another one and another one." So that insatiableness is his sort of like defining characteristic, right? And that's what separates him from everyone else. Not that there're not lots of people who are insatiable, but that the idea that like the idea that this person's going to just magically stop one day is just not in his DNA, you know? And, and yeah, so, so someone like Steve Jobs, ha there's a level of heartlessness in the ability to make that calculation that like, um, no, I'd rather be, have billions of dollars than people in China have better working conditions. So then when you hear that he like berated an employee, you're like, why would he do that? Well, it's the same trait, you know, the same heartlessness. I'm, I've, I've been fascinated by like Tiger Woods. I've been writing about him in a book project I'm working on now. It's the same thing. The, the, his golf coach was talking about how the heartlessness that allowed him to say like tune out everything that was going around him like on a when he's competing, like that like Tiger Woods would like say not sign autographs for kids. Um, because he like that would take his focus like a half second away from what he was doing, so he was that focused. But that's that same focus that allows him to like do the other bad things that he did. So like oftentimes the traits that make us really good at what we're doing uh, or what we're trying to do can in excess be make us horribly. You know, like Lance, he would do literally whatever it took to win. Well, uh, there's the the great Bill Burr joke, and and I'm 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 probably not repeating it um, verbatim, but something to the effect of like, but didn't five hundred million dollars go to cancer research, whether he cheated sure. or not? Like, regardless, and it was funny because I interviewed Chael Sonnen, uh, who's a really yeah. famous MMA mm -hmm. fighter, and he's sort of a notorious shit talker, but he said 
Lance Armstrong should have said, you better fucking believe I did it and I was still the best. You got your test and I beat 49 of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there, there was, it's, it's slightly more complicated than that, I would think. No, for sure. And so I, I see why people are really upset by it. And, and I think he even, he even knows why people are upset by it and why it may or may not have been the right thing to do. But I think what's interesting is, is that we were like, um, and by the way, it's not that we're we're just ungrateful for the five hundred million dollars you raised for charity. It's that we're kicking you out of the charity, right. so you can't do more. Like what we should have said, you'd think if people were smart, they would say like, "Look, you better go raise another five hundred million dollars, or we're not going to forgive you." Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like you you should have said like, "Here, like channel this energy into something positive." But instead, because yeah, society is 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 strange. We were like, "No, you should go away forever." Oh, yeah. That's crazy. But we have, uh, to what we were speaking to before, it's like we have this thing in our society, which is that if there's any public infraction that we deem is something that is of a certain level, we say, go to that island. Yeah. And we maybe we'll let you back, but it won't be for X amount of time or maybe never. Yeah. And instead of accepting the fact that we're all so painfully fallible, and there are some infractions that should not be forgiven. But ninety five percent should. Yeah, or or you know we um, we get really mad about like dumb things that people say. Right. And then there are th- like like we might get more mad at a remark that a CEO might make than labor conditions in Guatemala that a different CEO who is smart enough not to say something stupid is stu- so so we have this weird I think in the social media era because like words are the easiest thing to like hold up and say like, this is who this person is. So someone says something dumb or is accused of doing, you know, something that's sort of really straightforward, then we can be like, you're out of here. But then if someone is sort of subtly doing something behind the scenes, that's like really bad. Like John Ronson, who's this great author in one of his books, he has a line where he says like, if you want to be like malevolently evil, be boring because then you can get away with it. And that's, you know what I mean? Like really messed up stuff you can get away with if you're not, uh, if it's complicated. But if it's simple, like, again, you said something dumb, then then we can be like, we all agree. So the problems that we're talking about, which is that like, you know, we're quick to judge other people or we get caught up in, you know, sort of the moment and we, we, we take our anger or we project our anger out on other people, all the... On the one hand, these are sort of very modern technological problems. And then on the other hand, this is basically what humans have been doing since, you know, forever. So I think I think whether it's Stoicism or Buddhism or Christianity, um, we're, all, uh, we're all struggling to sort of rein in those impulses. Uh, do you know who René Girard is? He's this uh, French philosopher. And so his... You know, the idea of a scapegoat, like we're going to pick someone and they're sort of our sacrificial victim. Yes. So his point was that like with Christianity, um, with the crucifixion of Jesus, that was like the first time in history that we uh, used someone as a scapegoat and then realized that we made a huge mistake. And And that all of Christian sort of literature and theology is sort of a repudiation of the idea of that sort of grouped, you know what I mean? It's all about forgiving and it's all about, we, we're almost re, we reenact that sacrifice as a reminder, you know, like, um, uh, you know, uh, 
forgive them. They know not what they do. Like it's the whole process of Christianity is like in, in his eyes was like the idea of, of realizing that we have these sort of toxic primal impulses that we have to like get under control. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, I, to, I totally agree. And I, I think, I think that, um, we're one, one of the things I try to do in my own life is just try to like disconnect from that stuff as much as possible. So I'm like, I just see how angry most people are. Like I, I spend almost no time on Twitter now. Um, I, I try to watch as little news as the po- as possible. I try to like think bigger picture because I just see all these really smart, well-meaning people that I know who are just, even though their lives are going amazing, uh, and even though the world is actually pretty great right now, you know, despite some not great things, but they're just like totally unhappy and like nervous and scared all the time. Yeah, because because they, they're just sort of caught up in that. And they've, to me, and I see that, and sometimes I'll find myself feeling bad about myself because I'll have friends who can be like, how can you sleep? Right. Like, how can right. you live? Because what, me not sleeping, what does that do? Right, Nothing. exactly. It just punishes me. It's it's like the metaphor. It's not a metaphor, but it's it's like when you're on an airplane and they say, if the cabin pressure drops, put yeah. your mask on first. Yeah, to- totally. And um, you know, so stoicism, which is what I write a lot about, the sort of the first thing that they talk about is making the distinction between what's in your control and what's not in your control. Like the serenity prayer. The, yes, and the serenity prayer is sort of rooted in in stoicism, and so it's like, look. Does me getting upset about this exert any control on the situation? You know what I mean? Like, even if it, even if doing something about it is in my control, is being angry helping or not helping? Right. And so I, 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 it's not that I don't watch the news and then I go like, oh, someone else will handle this. But it, it's, it's, it's more like, look, is watching this thing in real, is watching this train wreck in real time. Uh, tweeting about it and getting upset about it and making, you know, picking fights with people about it. Is that having any impact? The answer is, of course not. Well, I find that, and I, I've gone on a whole rant about this recently of, of sort of people tweeting and thoughts and prayers yeah, and all right. this shit. It's, it's masturbatory. It's, yep. it's literally like you fire off this tweet and you get this moment of, and then if you see the proper amount of likes and or retweets that you've sent in your mind to feel as though you've been validated by the community, yeah. that like, oh, I've done something of importance. No, you haven't. Yeah, well, during the election, Obama had this, that great speech uh, where like he had mentioned Trump or something and then the audience booed and he said, don't boo, vote, you know? And nobody voted, you know, like right. nobody fucking voted. So, or uh, to, uh, if you look at the amount of attention these things get now, and then you compare them to how many people voted, doesn't add up. And so that's how you realize, oh, wait, this is totally masturbatory. Or, the, and there's some research that backs this up. It's, it's not even that it's masturbatory. It's that it's actually counterproductive. So the people who are most engaged, who are chatting the most and sharing the most and following the most actually are the least engaged at the level that matters the most. So like they are, you're actually less likely to say vote or make political donation or, you know, march in a thing or help someone who's stranded by the side of the road. Like it actually, you feel like you're contributing because you read all this news. 
Right. Which is like the thing we don't need more of. But then when we need actual help, you're like, well, I'm, I already did my part. And is that born out of the 20, like the advent of the 24 hour news cycle and the fact that news needs to be created at every minute because they need commercials and. Yeah. Look, if the news thought that by showing you this, you were going to get up off the couch and go do something about it, they wouldn't show <laughs> It'd it. It'd be to counterproductive. You. <laughs> exactly. Sure. So, like, the, the reason that everything you see on the news is, in a way, designed to make you just stick through the next commercial break or to, you know, like, here, here, like, you know, when you go to like a news site and you scroll to the bottom and there's like, okay, related articles, but then there's like those thumbnails of like, you'll never believe how Clip fat bait. Kim Kardashian Clip is. Bait. And that those are to- like, and, and you know, we know that those are all like really scammy. Like they're not, those are paid links. Yeah. They're going to be like, you have to click it 20 times just to get to the eventual. Yeah. Answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, look at these, you know, crazy celebrity photos, but then they don't actually exist or, you know, whatever. You should realize that that's who the news thinks you are. Like the new, you think the news thinks that you're some smart person who wanted to read about the new sort of like, I don't know, budget proposed by the Senate or whatever. Um, but actually it thinks you're an idiot who will read, uh, you know, you'll never believe what Josh Peck looks like now. You right. know, that's actually. <laughs> People do read that. Right. They love and, it. And, and that that's actually what's going on. Do right. you know what I mean? Like it, they don't want you to be informed. They want you to click that thing because they got seven cents when you did that. It just kills me at the idea of that we're still so reactive, whether you're left leaning or liberal or whatever, if you're not ultra to the right and conservative. You know, like my mom is guilty of this and, and I love her. God bless her. But she'll, you know, she's a news junkie. She loves it. So she'll call me and she'll be like, can you believe this? And I'm like, no, mom, I don't have time for this shit. Yeah. Like if it has anything to do with, if if it has anything to do with, you know, our president being crazy or him having a lascivious background or doing something inappropriate. Like we know all this right? and it's, but a distraction from, we should just see it, let it go by and go, all right, back to how, how are we going to get people to vote? Yeah. It's almost like uh meditating, you know, how you're supposed to see, like, you're, you're like, okay, this thought is coming in and I'm just going to let it go right through, right. you know, or like, I'm, I'm feeling the distraction, and so I'm going to let that go, and I'm going to come back to what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I, we need to be, we need to cultivate that sort of attitude at a unreactive at a, at a larger, yeah, because, um, yeah, so much of it doesn't doesn't even matter. So much of it has nothing to do with what you know we're supposed to be talking about. And then, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, so last year. Um, which I guess it was almost exactly last year when Hurricane Harvey happened. I live in Texas, and so obviously we're watching like the coverage. Like, you know, do we need to do something? Do we need to donate money? Should we go help people? Where I lived in Austin, we got hit actually a little bit, so it's like, okay, or do we need to evacuate? So I was watching that. We spent a lot of time watching, you know, the news coverage. It was great. Uh, then, like a week later, Irma hit Florida, and I, I one day my wife and I were sitting on the couch, and we we're like, why are we watching this? We don't live in Florida. Right. Like not that I don't care about the people in Florida, but why am I watching real time weather coverage of a storm in an entirely different state? You know what I mean? I don't I'm not going to it's not going to tell me that it's literally going to tell me nothing that I couldn't learn from a summary after it's finished. Right. Right. And so why am I do like it's like when you watch sports, like watching sports is great. I love that. But why do I watch during the week sports center to tell me what might happen 
on Sunday. Do you know what I mean? Like, what does it matter? Like, Ron Gronkowski will either play or he won't play. You know, injury reports are totally irrelevant to me. All that matters is, like, who's on the field when the game starts. And why do we do that? Because it's really entertaining. And and really smart people uh, have figured out how to make it really entertaining. It's like, why do you eat lots of Cheetos? Because scientists have figured out how to make Cheetos really, really good. Why do you spend more money than you should at a casino? Uh, Because really smart people have figured out how to make a casino loosen your wallet as much as possible. Like but, that's what it, that's what they do. And then there's also a version of it different. I think than the Cheetos of it all is like that it's, it allows us to live in the future and project sure. into what it's an what's escape. Coming. Yes. Yeah. It's Definitely. an escape. Definitely. For sure. Um, so I'm interested because funny story that we know each other. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah, we've, we've been in the same room for like an hour once. We've got a history. Yes. yes. And, it was you working at the collective, which was my sort of one of my first management places. Yes. Do you want to tell the story of how it sort of came to be? Uh, sure. So yeah. So I was. What was that? I think I had just gotten hired there. So I dropped out of college when I was nineteen uh, to be a research assistant for an author named Robert Green, and then I worked for one of the partners at the collective. This guy, Aaron Ray. Um, and uh, while I was there, YouTube had. So this was like 2007. So I think YouTube had just sold to Google. So it was like this thing that nobody knew uh, what it was going to be, but lots of people were watching it. And I was, yeah, 19. So um, I was really into it. And I'd, I'd read about somebody like UTA had signed like the first person from, from the internet, basically, or some, from YouTube. And I was like, oh, well, maybe there's something there. And so I went... Uh, and I was just looking at people, and I found this this kid who made these hilarious videos uh, named Dax Flame, uh, and it was this weird, like almost Kaufman esque performance art where you could not figure out if it was real, and this kid had Aspergers or was like a complete weirdo, or if it was like the most brilliant performance art ever. Like he was this loser, and he would basically do vlogs before there were vlogs about his life and he because you couldn't figure out what's wrong with him he was always getting in trouble it was hilarious and so i sent him a message and and then the collective signed him as a client and uh and i remember at a staff meeting or something uh everyone was talking about what we should what should we do and i said well i think you know youtube just came out with this partner program where they pay people money for making videos why don't we just start why don't we put all the collective clients on youtube and of course, everyone's like, no, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. But your manager, who was it? Sam. Sam Maydew. Sam yes. Maydew. Uh, he was like, well, maybe Josh would be interested in doing it. And so uh, I think the Wackness was just coming out then, yeah. right? Around then. Uh, and so um, we had you guys do a video together, right? Yeah. You and, yeah. You and Dax did this video together. And uh I think it did well. Uh, sure. I think it got like 700,000 views or something. Yeah, yeah. And, but at the time, it was weird. And then I think we used it to announce that you were starting a YouTube channel. Which I randomly did and then never touched again yeah. for 10 years. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. what I love about and it. squandered so, it. Right, yeah. You, you could have started your YouTube career in 2008. Ugh. And then... Uh, Been the biggest... I'd be fucking PewDiePie at this point. <laughs> I'd be crushing the game. Well, I mean, uh, and then what was funny is that it sort of never, it didn't go anywhere at the collective either. And they sort of, 
they were like, what are we going to commission ad checks? This isn't a good business. But then like three or four years later, they became basically like a YouTube studio. That's like what they did. They the signed... first multi-channel network. Yeah, right? they became like a, a big multi-channel network. I'd, I'd left by then. But um, And of course, I also blew it, which is that I, I mean, I could have started, like if I was smart, I would have started a multi-channel network uh, and probably made a huge company. But I was like, oh, okay. They didn't like it, so it wasn't, wasn't a good idea. Uh, that wouldn't have made you happy. Definitely not. But, <laughs> definitely not. But... Uh, yeah, it's it was this weird chapter of my life. And then so when you you messaged me on Instagram, yeah. but you didn't remember at all, right? No, I mean, I obviously I remember doing that video and as soon as you said it, it all sort of clicked in. Yeah. I I think and this might be rumor. Okay. I think Dax and I doing that video was the impetus for him to quit YouTube. Really? Why? He didn't like it? He was sort of at the end of his rope anyway. Okay. And I took a weird approach with the video to sort of copy his style. Yeah. And I don't think he liked that. Oh, really? And it was, you know, it's been interesting too. And and like we talk about how you said, you know, if I had started YouTube 10 years ago, but I f- find Dax is of a certain YouTube generation that sort of came and then, yeah. uh, you know, inevitably uh, their their channels. They were like too early. Yeah, like they yeah. only have so long, or like you even see it now with people like Grace Helbig or Tyler Oakley, who are still totally prolific, but have sort of, they're in a process of reinventing themselves for the new audience. Yeah, it seems like it's, I mean, can you imagine doing doing that for 10 years? I mean, it'd be like, even, even doing a TV show for 10 years would be a grind, but they, they pay you a lot of money, sure. you know, like to, to, to make a video a day for 10 years or whatever would be exhausting and both, both like personally and creatively. And yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it, it, it is, it is weird, but he went on to be like, uh, I, I didn't think about him for like many years. And then I saw, I, what did I watch? Um, what did I see him in first? I, he was in that movie project X and then he was also in uh, right. Twenty Two Jump Street. I, I forget which one came out first, but I was like, "That can't be! That can't be who I think it is." He went over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he he's a real. Now he's a real actor, which is I'm totally happy about. He made it out. Yeah, and I mean, he really. I mean, there are there are many people who have millions more YouTube followers than he ever had, who would kill to be in a quote unquote real movie like he's been in. Oh yeah, and I wonder. It was funny the other day. I was. You know, I've sort of unintentionally lived in these two worlds yeah. for the last, you know, five years since since Vine came around. And 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 recently, and, and I'd always imagined, because I grew up, we're the same age, we're like movies and television were king. Yeah. And for an actor, that was like the dream to be on, you know, one movie after the next. It's super... Uh, sure. And... I was doing an episode of Fuller House okay. because Stamos invited me to come go. on an episode because he's been this weird, uh, unintentional angel in my life. Is that the second season? The fourth. It's on the fourth season already? The show crushes it. I mean, I watched the first season. I, just, I was honestly waiting for the second season. I didn't even know it happened. It's so hard to keep track of everything that's happening. Now. There's too much. There's no, like, because there used to be a fewer amount of things so then you could, like, hear that things were coming. And now you're just like, wait. That show's on season four? Like, okay. It's nuts. Now I have to go watch like 18 hours of Fuller House. Treat yourself. I will. It's better than ever. Okay, good. My episode probably won't be around until next year. But, you know, and it was funny because I'd always imagined that if in TV and movies my my work started getting really busy and I was doing one thing after the next, that social media would probably fall 
right. more to the to the back seat. And then I was on set and I invited David Dobrik, who's this huge YouTuber and good friend of mine, to come to set to hang out with John. And I spent the entire day shooting the normal show. Yeah. And then we spent two hours shooting the vlog. Right. And I'm sitting there in between Stamos and Dobrik. And I'm like, oh, this is the future. Right, like some merging of the two? The marriage yeah. of this. I was like, this is just smart business. Because David has an audience that he's procured that that John normally would never have. Because yeah, it's sure. this rampant, ultra not ultra young, but younger fan base. It's of a specific type. And... You know, John has his three quadrant fan base that's known him for 30 years and follows him everywhere he goes. But the marriage of the two is so powerful. Yeah. No, there's this guy um, that I've watched way too much of now. His name is Blippi. Do you know who Blippi is? Uh uh-uh. All right. So Blippi has done two, million, two billion views on YouTube. Jesus. And my kid is obsessed with him. Uh, they're just basically, bit, he wears like this ridiculous hat and suspenders or whatever. But then he just goes around and he's like, it's like, this video is 18 minutes of Blippi on lawn mo- on riding lawnmowers. Or this is 18 minutes of Blippi on tractors. That's fucking brilliant. And so he's, like, <laughs> he is an enormous, I mean, he's not, like, at the level of, like, Mr. Rogers or, um, uh, I don't know, uh, Paw Patrol or, or Door the Explorer or something. But, like, this dude has created an enormous sort of children's universe, totally himself, Um and then, and then what's interesting is that you can watch him on YouTube, but you can also watch him on uh, like Amazon Prime or you can watch him on your TV because it's YouTube, right? Like, so to my kid, he has no idea that like this is only a YouTube person. But then when we're watching Nickelodeon, that's like a different thing. Yeah, Do you that's know what a I mean? professional. Yeah, to him, it's the same, it's the same box like right. on the wall. Um, and like... He even, like, my phone, he thinks, he just goes, like, tractor videos, tractor videos, and he just wants to watch tractor videos. And, like, he even doesn't know the distinction between Blippi, who's, like, producing content, and then, like, Instagram accounts that are just, like, clips of tractors. Sure. You know, so, like, it, it is, it totally sort of, it levels the playing field. Um, but I think one of the things that, like, social media people get wrong is they don't realize that... Actually, they some of them succeeded because the playing field wasn't level. So, like, the reason not that guy, but like the reason so and so is big on YouTube is because John Stamos wasn't on YouTube, and so they're actually not talented, like at all. Yeah, or they were er- they were just early. Right, right. And so I think at the end of the day, the only bet you can make is like. If you're talent, like, like, so I was like, look, we got to get someone like Josh on YouTube in 2007 and you didn't really do it. But then because you're actually good, but whenever you did get around to it, it worked. You know, so that's one of the things that I learned from, from Tim Ferriss, who I've I've known for a really long time. He always was like, don't have to be first, just have to be good. You know, like, um, and you don't have to be everywhere. You just have to be where you're good, you know? So um, he, he's all, it, that, that's been helpful to me where it's like, okay, look, if you just make the, – the rare thing is having like good – it's like the rare thing is the talent. And most people don't have talent. Not like they're not born with it, but they don't have – they have not cultivated or developed talent. And so it doesn't really matter – it, 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 it doesn't matter if you're early to YouTube. Okay, maybe sure you have like some business and, and it's it's working. But eventually, 
the talented people are going to come and take your lunch. Got another ad for you. I know this is your favorite part of podcasts because it's my favorite part, obviously. So let's just let's just live in this for a second. This little this little minor money making interruption. Mmm, feels good. Do y'all know Quip? Because I'm a friggin' big fan of Quip. There's a buzzy gift on everyone's list this year. It's something they'll use twice a day. It was featured on Oprah's O list, and it's perfect for everyone with a mouth. Uh, People with a mouth? Yes. Oprah? Uh Uh-huh. I'm in. The It Gift is Quip, an electric toothbrush designed to make brushing better. It's got sensitive sonic vibrations, gentle enough on your sensitive gums and your sensitive soul, and a built-in timer with guiding pulses to remind you when to switch sides. Quip is a gift that keeps on uh, refreshing, with brush heads automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. What, do you not have $5? You got $5. Don't lie to me. Look, and you can even gift prepaid refills for a year to make sure they're never using old, worn out, or ineffective bristles, which also sounds gross. That's why I love Quip, and that's why they have over 5,000 verified five-star reviews. My wife loves it. I love it. I mean, I'm not going to say that I've got the most incredible smile in the world, but it ain't bad. You know what I mean? People look at me, they know what's up. Anyway, get excited because Quip looks like a big ticket tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash curious right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush, but you don't have to tell your giftee that. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash curious. Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. It's interesting for me to watch someone like Will Smith, who's now taking the leap into YouTube. And I'm not surprised that he's great. Of course, because he's just talented. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? But, like, like, I wouldn't expect Sean Penn to have a great YouTube. I mean, not, yes, probably not. Probably not. But, but Will Smith has that affability that The Rock has, Kevin Hart, who are all crushing it on YouTube. Yeah, like if you went, but it's like if you took one of them and you went back 200 years to a theater, they would also be good. Yes. You know what I mean? They would, they would, they're just good at entertaining or that thing. Um, Man of the people. Yeah, they have like charisma or uh, gravitas or what, whatever it is that you need to do that thing. And so, yeah, I think people often get way too obsessed on like what the current medium of the moment is. And they're not like developing the long term sort of the long term skills that you're going to need in a given niche or whatever. So 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I I do think you're going to see people like him on YouTube, but you're it's you're not going to nest like a great. Do you know Casey Neistat? Of course. Like he's not Will Smith, but like he was late to say vlogging, but he was just so much better that he just sort of took over, and now he's sort of rightfully one of the top people. But if he left YouTube tomorrow, it's not like that would be the last you'd have heard of him. He'd just make it in some other medium because he has real. Not only does he have talent, but he has something to say or get across. So, so sure, maybe Sean Penn wouldn't be a great YouTube vlogger. But if Sean, if Sean, if if all the other mediums went away, Sean Penn would find some. He'd adapt. Yeah, he'd either be a an a pundit of some kind, or he'd make one amazing video per year, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like he'd just be really good at it. And to your point, and I've heard you say this before about Casey having a voice, and I feel like that's a big thing for you and you apply it to writers, but probably to people in general about the importance of having a voice, well, yeah, something people, to say. Like I was, I was on Reddit yesterday and uh, someone, it was actually, my favorite subreddit is, well, I have two. My first favorite subreddit is Ask Historians, where you, people ask historians advice. But my real more guilty pleasure one is Our Relationships. So R slash relationships. And so this woman was um, was was complaining that her husband or her boyfriend uh, wanted to be a novelist, and but he didn't want to go get a day job, and it was like tearing their relationship apart. But it was just really funny watching people give, people who know nothing about writing, giving this woman advice on how to talk to her boyfriend about his career. And they were like, he just thinks he's going to make it as a novelist. He has to go get an MFA. You can't be a writer without having a degree or whatever. And it's like, um, you're that people who don't do this for a living think that you need to be credentialed in some way, um, or that you need to be classically trained in some way. And those things might be advantages, but at the end of the day, if you don't have anything to say or offer, you're never going to make it. And, and I think that's actually why a lot of social media people have not, even though they have enormous audiences, why they haven't managed to transition um, to sort of what's called mainstream culture is that other than them, they don't have anything. Like other than like, like Logan Paul, like when I watch a Logan Paul video, I'm not like, oh, that guy has a really unique point of view. He has like an interesting personality, and I get why people are fans of him. But if if you told, if if you made Logan Paul get up on stage and just entertain people for like 30 minutes, I think he would have trouble doing that. I I agree, and I it's it's a funny thing because, and and I might get heat for this. I equate him to someone like The Rock. In the respect of, and I really respect The Rock that in a way that I don't necessarily respect Logan yet, just because he hasn't achieved that level of, yeah. of greatness and uh, you know being that prolific. But I think what they have in common is sheer level of ambition that allows them to outwork the competition with with per se less talent than maybe would be required of someone of like a a willingness to to go so hard and outwork everyone else like it's funny i was having this conversation with casey and we were saying how he's like i don't know what's next for logan but i bet you he will figure it out yeah i hope so yeah i hope so i think like i I deal mostly with writers, and so what you'll see is these people will be very popular, like they'll be very good bloggers, 
And then when it comes to, like, say, writing a book, they just can't do it um, because they've been very spoiled by the the constraints of one medium. So, like, they're like, oh, people, bloggers, uh, you know, readers of blogs love thousand word articles. They love bullet points, but but they don't they don't realize that every medium is different. But at the core, you just have to like provide value. And you have to figure out the constraints of the medium and then deliver value through those constraints. And so they'll, you know, their book will be like 50 blog posts stapled together rather than figuring out what a book needs to be or do. Um, and so, but, it, but, but the people who have something really important to say, they figure it out. Right. And the people who are just lucky or early, they don't figure it out. Yeah, and especially if you just have three million followers because you have abs on Instagram. Yeah, right. And you're making great money, you know, hawking fit tea. Yeah. But, you know, the next level, the next version of that, you no, know. No, because those people reach out to me and they go, hey, I want to do a book. Like, I have all these stats, you know, I want to do a book. And then the question, the first question is, what is your book about? And the book is always like, well, it's about how I got famous on Instagram. Or it's like, it's about, you know, how to get abs. And it's like, do you know how many books there are about that? Right. You know, like not that you, you're, you're thinking like because you got big on Instagram by randomly starting an account and then it being popular, you haven't actually taken the time to figure out like what people want. You know what I mean? And you think that a book or a TV show or a podcast is just going to be the same thing. And that's not. Well, and I think you know, it's it's such an interesting paradox, right? Because I think what you're saying is so right in the, you know, in the Reddit sub article about like, there is no traditional advice to give someone who wants to go into a creative endeavor yeah. such as that. And, and so because it's really hard to quantify exactly what it is that allows someone to be prolific when it comes to artistry, right? you know, it people feel as though the barrier of entry is so low. Yeah. Like I can... I'm an actor because I say I'm an actor right. and I'm a writer because I say I'm a writer. And yet like people don't understand that it doesn't necessarily have to be in the four year college system or whatever that looks like, but you better fucking believe that anyone that we find great or is putting out great work has put in such an insane amount of hours Yeah, that, and that's, you know, that's what people I think um, take for granted yeah, no, look, if it was easy, there wouldn't be any money in it. Mm. In in the sense that like the reason the reason that like LeBron James makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year is that there are very few people who can do what LeBron James does. There are lots of people that want to be LeBron James, but very few people can do it at his level. And then there are very few people who can do it at the level of the worst guy in the NBA, right? Like yeah. how, however many there's probably a couple hundred guys in the NBA, the worst guy is at the ver it is still scarce enough that he gets five hundred thousand a year or whatever the minimum contract is in the NBA, and so if it if it was actually easy, like if it was just being tall or if it was just like uh, you know uploading photos or whatever it is, um, that wouldn't be true. You know what I mean? Like there wouldn't be they wouldn't be giving big contracts to writers or athletes or actors. If it was easy, right? And yeah. if it didn't, if there wasn't like a level of luck to it, a level of sort of dedication, and then some some scarce thing that they can't get from anyone else. 
You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And just the level of, you know, what I've learned and, and especially having so many ups and downs in my career is the necessity in which, like, the acting is a, it's a literal muscle, mm-hmm. no matter how developed or, or undeveloped it is, that yesterday's workout will not keep you fit tomorrow. Right. And that, you know, the, the need in which, and especially as, as far as a, a artistry goes, you can play music alone, you can paint alone, you can write alone. You can't really act alone. Yeah. You sort of need permission. Unless you're practicing monologues, you need someone to do it with. So you sure. need a structure. And, and your thing is also the most expensive of all the things to do. Right. Right? Like uh, books have much better margins than uh, than movies because movies involve so many more moving pieces, you know. So like, I, what would be what would terrify me about being an actor is that someone, e- even if you make your own material, somebody has to choose to make it with you. Yeah, you know, um, unless you put it on YouTube, which is a different lane, but yeah, is sure. is a possibility now. Yeah, that's true. And 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 like, uh, have you seen the Disaster Artist? Yes. It's like, look, if if it was just about wanting it really bad, he would be he would have made an amazing movie. Like he wanted it really bad. The most. But he didn't actually want to do the work of like, you know what I mean? Like he didn't want to actually do the work of or, or see the situation honestly in the way that you need to. So like it it it's it it has to be about um you want the thing, but mostly you want to do the thing the most. Like you, you don't want the. There's a good Cheryl Strayed line where she talk, she's talking to some writer, and she was like, "You've confused writing with publishing." So like this guy thought that being a writer was like having books, not like writing books, you know. And I think people probably mistake that with acting too, where they they're like they don't actually want to be an actor; they want to be a movie star, right? And that's very different. Yeah, if um, you and, want to be on a shitty goal, it's a shitty goal. It's a shitty goal because one, it's motivated by ego. You know, like you're just like, like people don't want to be writers; they want to be Ernest Hemingway, which it's like it's just not going to happen. Like you just, it's not going to happen that way. But then also, um, you've now take like if you if your goal is like I love writing, I want to write things. Well, then that goal is totally in your control because no one can stop you from doing that. If your goal is to be a famous writer, well, then a lot of things that are outside of your control have to happen for you to be that thing. Like um, I, I, my my business works with a lot of writers, and one of my huge red flags is whenever a, an author tells me how many copies of their book they want to sell, um, because it's ego one. Like they just pick this number because they heard somebody else sold a similar number. But two, it's totally outside of your control. Like, you think Malcolm Gladwell deliberately tried to sell exactly how many copies of his last book he sold? No. An author is trying to sell as many copies as possible, but is mostly just trying to write the best book they can possibly make and want as many people to see it. But they're not, they're not trying to, you know, Babe Ruth wasn't trying to hit a specific number of home runs. He was trying to hit a home run whenever he could hit a home run. And so that's... You got to make the distinction between like the outcome and the process. And it's much better if you love the process. And I'm wary of people that only like whenever anyone comes up to me and says, I'm an actor, I want to be an actor. My next question, and I'm, I'm giving you the warning now, anyone that listens, my next question is, are you in class? 
Are mm. you in a form of class? Right. A scene study, be it Meisner, be it Strasberg, whatever it is. If you're taking the fucking Alexander technique, are you doing something to work on your instrument, which is you? Is the Alexander technique a bad one? No, Alexander. Oh. But it, Alexander technique is more about. It's less about acting and more about um, letting go of tension in your body. Oh, okay. Which it, it's actually incredible and very important because you'll see a lot of people in acting class who have tension in their voice uh-huh. or parts of them because we're all sort of uh, we're all equipped with these weird defense mechanisms that we've we've picked up over our right, life. Right, right, right. And and that's always my question. And nine out of ten people will say, "I used to be." Or right. no. Right. So you've no. mastered it then? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you're, you're all done? better. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Because they feel like it's this weird thing that you can't quantify and that it's not a muscle. So it's not something you need to cultivate. It's just you need to make a decision and then act as if. But it's like and, – and I was guilty of it in my – you know, I studied for five years as, as a teen – unrelenting and then over you know in my 20s I sort of went in and out of class but more out and there was a moment where I started feeling weirdly fraudulent where I just wasn't sure that I was using that I was equipped with everything that was necessary to do the best job sure and in going back to class and having like this unrelenting teacher who takes no shit and literally pulled the covers off I felt like much to your point, I have no power on the result of whether or not I get this job, how it's perceived, but I know that I've done everything in my control and, and I, I've utilized all my ability and talent and what have you to do my very best at this. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I, I bet two things happened. So one, um, you, at, at, on, when you were in it, the classes the first time you were just like learning stuff and then, um, what you started to learn as after you left, which is actually, I think, the, one of the harder things to learn, you learned all the things that you didn't know. Like, you started to see other actors probably do things that you were like, I don't know how to do that. Or you were up for jobs that required, that called for you to do something that maybe you either couldn't do or you was a reach for you to do. And then, and, and that is the most, I talked about this in my book, Ego's the Enemy, the idea of, um, you can't learn that which you think you already know. And so when you realize you don't know something, uh, it's actually really empowering because now you can do something about it. There's this quote from this physicist, John Wheeler, and he's saying that as our, as our island of knowledge grows, so does the shoreline of ignorance. So basically, the more you learn, the more you bump into stuff that you didn't know that you know. Right, that's Socrates. He learns that he does. He's he's the wisest man because he knows what he doesn't know. And so you were you were doing that. So you you were like bumping into all this stuff that you didn't that that at eighteen you didn't even know were a thing, and therefore you didn't know that you didn't know how to do them. Right. And then as soon as you learned that you didn't know how to do them, you could go to class and learn them. And then I think it's way better to feel like you're a student of something than to to feel egotistically that you've mastered something because it's better to all like uh, there's a line from a really great baseball player whose name I'm forgetting, but he says there is no slump for someone who is trying to always get better because there's, you're, you're not thinking about just the outcome. You're just thinking about the process. And that's probably why you started to like it again. And it's the only thing that saved me because at the end of the day, and it's funny, it's a line that Joaquin Phoenix says in uh I'm still here or, yeah, yeah. or 
the the mockumentary made yeah. with Casey Affleck, and he's playing sort of the role of the douchebag, uh, you know, very uh, stereotypical actor. But he goes, man, the only magic for me is between action and cut. The rest <laughs> is fucking bullshit. But I'm like, yeah, that's it. Like yeah. to me. I'll sit in a black box theater in Venice, an acting class, just doing scene work. A lot of stuff, by the way, that I wouldn't get the opportunity to do out there because it's, you know, plays that I had never written and and the kind of parts that I don't get offered, you know, really juicy, yummy things. And I was like, I am so overpaid in this moment. I'm so happy and rejoicing in this. And to your point, a lot of people would be like, but where's the, like, but this acting class doesn't come with like the cool Hollywood party yeah. or the free shit. Or you the- need reps. You know what I mean? You need as many reps as possible. And it's really hard to get reps only, like, it's really like, how many movies are you going to do in your life? Pro- like, let's say you have an amazing career, like 30 or 40, right? Like, that's probably a lot, right? Is that a lot? I don't yeah, know. Could but be. let's say you do fifty movies in your life. It's a that, shitload. You're like, wow, that was a successful. That's only fifty different roles. Right. That's crazy. You, you know what I mean? You need way more than that to get. Like, if you want the fiftieth one to be amazing, you need more practice than that. And so, like, even I think about that with books. Like, one of the reasons I write articles constantly, some of which you know make money, some of them don't. Um, the and, and all of which I think and have the larger effect of building a platform, the real reason I'm writing all the time is that I just want as many reps as possible. Like, you know, comedians, it's the clearest, right? Like, you just go on stage and you tell jokes. And you just, it's about stage time. And the more stage time you have, the better the comedian you are. But it's really hard to get stage time in, like, all the other professions, you know? like Oh, yeah. And also, there's nothing, um, it's beautifully... Subjective, I guess. Yeah. It's not objective. It's subjective in the sense of, of that it's it's very clear. Like there's no interpreting whether something is funny or not. If it didn't get a laugh, yes. it's not right. funny. Right. So yeah, they have the clearest reps. I mean, obviously, it's still hard to get stage time, but they they can just you could you in New York if you're a decent stand-up comedian, you could go on stage five or six places in one night. Totally. You know, and like I can't write five or seven books in one night, let alone like one. In one decade, let alone like one night, right? So, like, how can I go out and just get as many reps as possible, right, trying to do this thing that I do, which is like I have a thought and now I need to articulate it in a clear way and see if it works for an audience or not. Right. And and so yeah, acting class is a way to get reps. Like, is this working or not? How is it feeling for you? How does the teacher think? What is the what do the other acting students think? You know, and you just yeah, and and but the only thing. The, the drive to be famous or rich isn't going to get you through those. It isn't going to, isn't usually sufficient motivation um, to, to do that. Right. Or as soon as you get it, as you did, then the, the desire to keep doing it abates because it's scary or frustrating. Or, you know what I mean? It's, it's humbling. Like you go to acting class, you get your ass kicked. Oh, yeah. And I don't know whether it's having a Jewish mother or what, but like, I love criticism. (laughs) And I love because I, you know, because usually it will reveal itself as this, you know, I'm totally a sensitive being and so it fucking kills. But I'll know that there's like 3% of it that's right, that's addressing something. And, and now like the, you know, what someone once said, like, 
a teacher is the greatest shortcut that the world has ever known. Yeah. Because it's, you know, because I didn't know how to fix these things. And I'd had these suspicions about myself, these these inequalities, these bad habits that I'd procured over years of just doing this thing to be more likable or to not embarrass myself in front of a crew or in front of the director that I respect. And and I think there's a part of it too. And this, I, I, I feels like this speaks to ego, which is like, I've tried to adopt later in my life the the Pixar mentality of fail quick. Yeah. Which is like, the reason why a Pixar movie costs $200 million is that for one year, they've walked down three different story ideas down, you know, and they've walked sure. it all the way and they've put 20 million into each idea only to reveal that it wasn't right. Right. But out of that, they got closer to the thing that was. Yeah. Up was like a movie about some prince who lives in a spaceship that right. flies around. Yeah. They totally got to the, the guy with the balloons like on accident. And had they not had the, you know, they, they weren't going to self critique or, you know, had they. Sure. Had they not done that, they wouldn't have gotten this inevitable thing. But I think most people go, I'm not going to take a step until I know for sure that I won't be humiliated in front of people. Yeah, yeah. Or or, um, I'm not going to do that until you pay me. Right? Like like the amount of writers that think that you start with a book deal, you know, Um, which is not how it is, right? Like you write for – like I think I started – so I started my blog – basically like the day I graduated from high school. So this would have been like 2000, summer of 2005. And I got my first book deal. Uh, I didn't get paid for it until later, but like I signed my first book deal in December of 2011 and the book didn't come out until late 2012. So a lot, it took a like, it was a lot of reps before even my first book, which is like not when I look at it now, I think is I wish I'd, I actually wish that period had been longer. You know, like it would have been better if I'd, if I'd not tried to rush it. Sure. And so, um, yeah, it just takes, it takes longer than you think. And it takes being wrong a lot. Uh, and so something has to be, you have to be, it can't be that like you really want it. It has to be deeper than that. It, it, there has to be some purity to your motivation or it's really hard to get through that shitty period. So let's go back and talk a little bit about, where did you grow up? In California? Yeah, I grew up in in outside of Sacramento. My wife's from Sacramento. Where? From ESAC. Okay, I'm from... The fabulous 40s. I grew up in Fair Oaks, and then we moved to Granite Bay uh, afterwards. Uh, Like, like, you know the movie Lady Bird? Sure. That's like my high school class. Like, I'm class of 2005, and you know, like the mean girl in that movie, she went to. She was like, "Oh, she's from Granite Bay. That's where I was from." That's crazy. Yeah, my wife knows a lot of people from that movie. Yeah, and so you grew up in Sac, and then when did you make your way to LA? So I went to college at Riverside. Okay. Um, so that would have been like I think I was there from 2005 to 2007. What was your major? Political science and creative writing. And why UC Riverside? Uh, my high school girlfriend went there Strong. and then, and then I just wanted to be, I, I, I don't know if I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to do something creative. And so Southern California is like that. The you epicenter. Know? 
Yeah, like in, in Lady Bird, she wants to go to New York. I wanted to go to like Southern California, but I didn't get into UCLA. So I know I'm making a massive generalization here, but I've, you know, what little I knew of Sacramento before I met my wonderful wife. But you guys are just salt of the earth people. Uh, yeah, well, the, the, the line at the beginning of Lady Bird is that uh, Sacramento is the only uh, town in the Midwest located in California. And that's basically what it, that's very true. Right. It's just, yeah, it's like a normal suburban, just like middle American town. But you're right. It is trucks and country music and hunting and there is a Midwest quality to it. Yeah, there's, yeah, it's just, there's not a California quality to it. Right. Is what it is. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Did you grow up going to Tahoe? I did. Like I asked my parents later, like why we live there. And they said, um, because it was two hours to Tahoe and two hours to San Francisco. And so I said, so we lived here because it was close to two other better places <laughs> that's the worst uh but yeah and you talk about when you left college it was because you had this opportunity to go work at the yeah. not at the collective no, that was one of them so my i was an assistant uh, to a guy at the, the the guy the manager the partner at the collective was like look i'm gonna fire my assistant you can be my assistant if you want because hollywood is that ridiculous system where you like the first job is answering people's phones. You know, like they, they try to like crush all the creativity out of you as early as possible. And it's like 14 hours a day yeah. and like 30 grand a year. Yeah, it's that's what I made. Awful. Yeah, but, uh, but that's what I left school for, which my parents thought was the worst idea in the world and flipped out and everything. But. And your parents are, uh, what do they do for work? My dad was a police detective and my mom was a school principal. So, I mean, educated people. Educated people, but but like civil servants, like not like obviously I didn't know anyone that made any any money doing any creative thing my entire life. Did you go to the school where your mom was a principal? No, no. She taught, she was a principal of adult school, like after, like, you know, not college, but after high school, like your GED or like computer classes and stuff like that. And did they sort of instill this sort of, was it nature or nurture, this thirst for knowledge and this incredible like nomenclature mind that you have? My dad's really smart, uh, and, but like more in like a blue collar, like figured it out, like sort of Republican self-made way. Mm. Uh, and then my mom, I think my mom is the one who turned me on to reading. I, one of my grandmothers did as well. So I, it was more like, it was more like they just like gave me books and then books took me in a very different direction than my childhood would have ordinarily have gone. And so when you get the opportunity, because you have a, a interesting take on the whole, you know, I didn't go to college, you left college. And I feel as though in, in something you were talking about, I think on Tim's podcast, which which is the romanticizing of leaving college or feeling like it's a, you know, it, it's now a prerequisite to do quote unquote, like big yeah. things. And I love that quote that you see a lot of like, people are always like, yeah, like Bill Gates and Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard or dropped out of college, but they dropped out of Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know? Well, I thought college was going to be amazing. Like I was so excited. I thought it was like, these are people who love books. There's going to be all these genius professors there. We're going to learn. And then I remember like my first class, like on the first week they assigned like a group project which is like my least you know what i mean like right. you know in high school you're just like a fucking 
group projects. Give me a break. Yeah, like we have to make like a poster. You know, like we had to do something like that. Yeah, I, I gotta like, be in Donnie's fucking group. Give yeah, me a I was break. like, this is not what I thought college was gonna be. I really, I actually really liked it, but I, I thought it was gonna be something different. And then I did end up dropping out, but I, but not only did Bill Gates and, and Zuckerberg drop out of, of Harvard, so they were like ahead of the curve already. <laughs> sure. But they dropped out to pursue companies that they'd already started. So, um, you know, I left college to work for one of the best writers, living writers on the planet, right? This guy named Robert Greene, who I, who wrote, who writes the kinds of books that I wanted to and ended up writing. So, um, and, and then I also had a day job that, that at a cool place where I got to do cool things. I think I have very rarely heard, and, and now since I've written about it, I, I hear from lots of people that want to drop out of college. I very rarely, when people reach out to me and they're thinking about dropping out, do they actually have a compelling reason for doing it? It's just that they don't like it or that it's not going well. Right. It's never like, I just got cast in this movie. Right. <laughs> and if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. Should I drop out? That's like, yes, drop out, right? It's It's like... I want to drop out of college to be an actor. And it's like, are you in any acting classes now to go to your question? Do you have an agent? Do you have any heat? You know, like, is be, tell me how going to class 12 hours a week or whatever it is, is, is preventing you from pursuing your dream of being an actor. Like, I don't buy it. So, yeah, I think most people drop out because they think it's this sort of glamorous step towards pursuing whatever they're doing when really there's actually sort of no impediment to them starting that thing right now and keeping school as a safety net in some way. And how were you introduced to Robert Greene, this guy who you idolized? I've been using the college. I was writing for the college newspaper and I was interviewing other writers and I met a different writer who I started working for who also knew Robert Greene. So I was like already doing it, you know? Not only was I writing in college and getting paid to write for this college newspaper, but like, which I guess is technically the first time I got paid to write, but um, I was meeting people, like, you know what I mean? I was starting relationships that would open up opportunities that I ultimately ended up pursuing. And do books, like he wrote 48 Laws of Power and 48 Laws of Seduction. The Art of Seduction. The Art of Seduction. Yeah. Do, you know, these are like very powerful books that, you know, embolden you with these tools in which to, to excel in a business setting, but really, and you can apply it to a bunch of different life things. I guess my question would be, does it, is it contrary to stoicism in some respects? Because it feels feels very controlling. Well, so his, there is a darkness to his books. Um, So actually, uh, I would say no in, in, for two reasons. So one, the premise of the books is is not this is how you should be. Mm. The premise of the books is this is how the world has worked throughout history. These are observable laws be about aware. how power operates, right? So like um, uh, never outshine the master would be is like the first law in the 48 laws of power. If you're if I if I was working at the talent agency, um, I and my, I like I was hired by the partner to be the young person who was giving him ideas that he could take credit for. If I was going around showboating, letting everyone know, you know, that uh, I had 
signed this person or this was my, I would not last long there, right? So it's not, he's not saying that when you're the boss, you should not let anyone outshine you. He's saying that when you're on your way up, make sure that you don't step on a landmine by showing up your boss. Sure. So there's that. And then two, um, I think uh, my experience from Robert, he is like one of the most sort of moral, uh, kind, generous people ever. Like, again, never outshine the master. He has been super generous and uh, and supportive of my own career, which if he observed the 48 laws of power, he would not be, right? Or one of the laws is let others do all the work, take all the credit, right? Like if he was that person, we probably wouldn't be sitting here. And so um, there's a, I think there's a difference between like sort of analyzing things historically and then actually deciding how you're going to be. And so then when does American Apparel come into the fold? So right, probably not that long after you and I met, there was sort of a blow up at the collective, which I won't get into, but I ended up quitting. Um, and uh, I had already met Dove, who's the founder of American Apparel, through Robert, who's on the board of the company. And we'd been talking, he'd been trying to hire me anyway. So I just went straight from the collective to there. So like late 2007, probably that happened. And in that time, where is American Apparel in their story? So it had already, it had already been around for a while and it had sort of blown up and then was in its, and it had gone public, but then had sort of subsequently not been going well. Things had not been going well. And it was sort of a disorganized, dysfunctional company. So I came in as sort of a consultant advisor and then ended up focusing mostly on marketing and I sort of rebuilt a lot of their marketing stuff. And so that's what I did for the next like five or so years. And you gained a lot of attention because you're, I mean, their marketing was renowned. Yeah, they were a really sort of controversial, provocative company. Obviously, the genius of a lot of that was Dove. That's what he, it was his company. He took all the photos. He did all the stuff. So it was in terms of like as a marketer, like you're being given like really great sort of material to work with, obviously. But it was really crazy to be, you know, 21, 22 years old and, you know, having the ability to sort of like I would, I could put something up and then, you know, the New York Times would call. Like it, it was like a really big platform really early uh, and really sort of, it was very fortunate to have that. But walking into it, did you, uh, I find that for me, because now like I'm 10 years sober and I have a very specific like family and life structure that whenever yeah. I walk into anything that's like remotely dysfunctional, yeah. I'm hypersensitive to it. But maybe I wouldn't be sort of, fresh into the business world at 23, yes. 24. But when you walked into it, did a bunch of, you know, red alerts go off where you were like, ah, this no. is, this is sinking. No, I've had, I've had my own sort of struggles with like getting sucked into stuff like that. Like I get like when something is chaotic and dysfunctional, I tend to see like what's interesting and cool and, and what sexy. the opportunity. It's seductive. Yeah. And, and like I get caught up in the energy of it. Um, and so the, the red flags that were obvious did not go off like at all. Um, and it was, it was a while until it sort of became clear and then you're sort of in it and it's, it's hard to detangle yourself from it because you have all these conflicting thoughts about it. But yeah, no, for, I would say that for a good chunk of my twenties, my 
my MO was to be way too involved in totally dysfunctional relationships with successful people who are in many ways like the complete opposite of me. So I think in a weird way, one of the reasons I was, I, I, I met, like, it's funny, it was this company that had all this attention and did all this stuff, but there have been very few people who have come out of it that have done anything, which you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect, or you would, you would expect it to be otherwise, right? You'd expect all these people to have been poached by different companies and sure. have gone on and done things. Um, I think one of the, like, I was, uh, so I met my wife in college and we've been together uh, now like 11 years. So I think one of the, one of the ways that, because I, I, just, I just saw it as like a cool opportunity to do stuff and to learn things, but really at the end of the day, I wanted to be a writer. I, it, it didn't, I didn't end up like getting sucked into it. Slightly unattached. Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of always had one foot in it and one foot out of it. So I could see it with a little bit more objectivity. Um, that in retrospect, I wish I'd left, you know, five or six years. Uh, I wish I'd probably left after five years rather than, I think I left after seven or eight. I wish I'd left earlier and I wish I'd left over some things that uh, were really upsetting to me that I, I, I thought I could resolve by staying, if that makes sense. Like sure. I, I was too, but I should have seen that this is a business. This is not like a family. You can just leave, you know? Uh, but yeah, uh, I was definitely blind to a lot of things when I started there. And I picked up a lot of bad habits there too that I'm still dealing with now and trying to get out of my system. Want to give an example? Well, just like, okay, when you work at a company where the CEO is the founder, CEO, majority shareholder, um, creative director, all these things, it was a completely flat organization that he ran sort of entirely through like grit and determination. He was a complete micromanager and like no work-life balance, any of that. But so for that period of my life, that's what I thought, that's how I thought CEOs were. Right. And so it's hard running my own company or my own life. Like after I left, I remember one time I called someone who worked for me at my company at like, I don't know, like 1 a.m. or something. And my wife was like, you can't call people at 1 a.m. Like, right. you know, you can't, she was like, you can't even call people past 8 p.m. What are you doing? And it was just like, just never, that was, I used to get calls at 1 a.m. Of course you could call someone Common at 1 a.m. occurrence. Yeah. And so I just sort of picked up habits like that. Aren't wives just the best at informing us of where we are not acting correctly? Yeah. And especially if your wife is like a normal person who doesn't do what you do. Oh, it's the best. She's like, what are you talking about? This yeah. is insane. And like now if I'm like, how did I not see, you know, X, Y, and Z? She's like, not only did you not see it, I saw it and I told you this. Yes. And you got mad at me for telling you that. Oh. And so it's like, yeah, of course. You know, I listened to Dove on when you, are you familiar with the startup podcast? Yeah, I was interviewed for that. Oh, really? Yeah, you you would have heard me on it. So I heard you on it. Yeah, and and that was my first introduction to Dove, and my, that's exactly what he's like, but it was worse. Well, I have no doubt, and I what I took away from it was that, and I had no doubt that he was incredibly charismatic and charming in in many respects. It was King Baby. It was a petulant that there was like this imbalance of 
he could not reconcile the idea of things not going his way when he insisted that they should and that people not acting the way that he believed that people should just act. Yeah, that that was that's that's a good read on it. He he's um the so one of the things that happens uh and I think this is a cautionary tale for a lot of creative people too is that like Amer- I think I told them this on the podcast, but it's like okay, the idea for American Apparel is insane, right? We're going to make our own clothes, we're going to make them in America, we're going to own our own stores, we're not going to have any branding, we're going to sell our prices at a very or sell our items at a very high price. We're not going to sell fashionable clothes. We're going to sell the same things, blah, blah, all those things. Those, if you were trying to create a list of why a fashion company would not work, you could not come up with a better list than those things. Sure. But it worked, right? It became a company with 250 stores in 20 countries and you know, $700 million a year in sales. And so, he wanted to get out of sweatshops, right? Like yeah, he, right, right. He wanted good conditions for... But so he did, he did a crazy thing and it worked. And everyone had told him it was crazy and it wouldn't work. And, and so what he learned from that is don't listen to other people, you know? And it's like, so when they said, look, you got to hire a really good accountant and you got to hire a really good COO and you got to do this and that and this and that. He was like, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm Dove Charney, right? Like, King did baby. You? Right, <laughs> exactly. And so, so he learned a really dangerous lesson. Um, you know, it's like, it's like a Kanye West where you're like, everyone tells you you're never going to make it in music. So, but you make it in music and then everyone tells you you're not, you're not going to make it in fashion and you don't listen. Do you know what I mean? So it's a really, like, you have to be, you have to, uh, you have to know what you're doing and why the feedback you're getting is right or wrong. You can't just ignore it because it's not what you want to hear. Right. And so, so a huge part of it was like, I mean, if you had given me unlimited power or anyone unlimited power to fix American apparel, they could have fixed it like that. So it's not like nobody knew what to do. It's that he didn't want to do it because it wasn't what he thought it should. He didn't want, he thought everyone who was telling him these things was wrong. Guys, one more, one more advertisement. We can fucking do this together. Together, we are going to get through this because this is a podcast which is supported by ads. And you know what else is supported by ads? My newborn child on its way. They're going to, you know, they're going to need diapers and healthcare and various toys. And what, what does that come out of thin air? No, daddy's got to pay for that. You know how he does it? This, care of. Are you familiar? Because Care-of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Let me tell you, when I want vitamins and supplements, I don't want them at the store. I want them at my door. Care-of's fun online quiz asks you about your diet, health goals, lifestyle choices, and takes only five minutes to find out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. Let me tell you, the quiz, not only was it five minutes, it was fun felt like I was back at school, but that there was no sort of stakes, that the result, no matter what, was I was going to start feeling better 
because of all my personalized vitamins and my supplements. Anyway, 90% of people fall short of FDA-recommended guidelines for at least one vitamin or nutrient. Take care of quiz and get the vitamins you need to get back on track and reach your health goals. And here's the best part. A portion of every sale goes towards the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. So get psyched because I know you all are. For 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit takecareof.com and enter PEC. That's 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Visit takecareof.com and enter PEC. By year six or seven, were you chasing your paychecks? Like, was there ever a month where you didn't get paid? Um, so what happened was, so, so I started there in like 2007. And then I moved, I left LA and I moved to New Orleans to write my first book in 2011, in late 2011. And I'd actually decided I was going to do that a year before. So like two years in, I was already ready to leave. And then I left and I wrote a book and it sold really well. And, you know, my first book contract was worth a lot more than I was making there. And then I, then I sold another book and then I sold another book. So I did three books from 2000. 12 to 2014 when I did leave. So like I, I was always one foot in, one foot out. Um, but uh, then I was like both feet out. But then I didn't leave because like I built this team of people and a, a lot of the things that you've heard about American Apparel are true. And so I really didn't want to leave those people by themselves. Like I wanted to protect those people. And as long as I stayed, I could do that. Um, and for whatever reason, he listened to me and he sort of left my people alone. I think he was a little bit afraid of me towards the end too. Um, like towards the end before he got fired, <clears throat> you know, in, in that scene in Breaking Bad where they, they like kill all those people that they have to kill, you know, they do like the cleanup mm-hmm. when they partner with the neo-Nazis and they have to like clean, they have to kill all the people who are, who know where this, they, that was what it was like at the end of American Pearl. He was just like firing everyone he could get rid of to keep control of the company. And for whatever reason, I didn't get fired because I don't know why. But so I stayed to protect my people, but it was weird to see how bad it was. It, it was like, it was really bad towards the end, like just really bad. I don't know if it was ever like, are we going to make payroll bad? But it was, it was like, I mean, the stock got down to like 30 cents or something. So it was, it was really bad. And, and last question about American Apparel, but who was Dove when you started and what, who was Dove when you left? So when I start, the, the first time I met Dove, um, he, well, I met him at his house. He has this weird mansion in, that overlooks the reservoir in Silver Lake. You've probably seen it before. And, and we talked, we had this amazing conversation. He's like, I want you to come to the factory with me. I want you to see this. So we drove down to the factory. And as we walked like the floor of the factory, like these workers got up and like started cheering and clapping for him. Oh, like, man. so it was just like overwhelmed. You're just like, holy shit. Like where did, who, who does that? Who claps for their boss? Right. And these are, these are like, um, you know, immigrants from every country in the world who've come here who make a living way. It was just very powerful to me. And so that was that was who I met at first. And then the last two memories left of uh, the, my two final memories of Dove are when the board fired him, he uh, he didn't know that I had 
agreed with their decision. And so he called me thinking that I would sort of support him in this crazy fight to regain the company, which ultimately destroyed it. And I said, Dove, so are you going to leave? Are you going to walk away? Are you going to start another company? Are you going to be like Steve Jobs? Uh, And he just said, he said, Ryan, Steve Jobs died. That was all that he said. And I was like, what are you talking? That doesn't even make any sense. (laughs) Weird. Yeah. And then, so then, uh, as he was kicked out of the company, do you know where the American Apparel Factory is? In downtown, yeah. Yeah. So it's like in... Basically, at the end of Skid Row, right. there's the American Apparel Factory, and then next to the factory, there's Farmer Boys, which is like 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 a fourth tier Southern California uh, fast food chain. Dove set up his office in Farmer Boys because he was banned from the factory. He set up a miniature office in a booth at Farmer Boys and was trying to run the company that he had been unceremoniously fired from. Uh, he was trying to run it from a booth at Farmer Boy. So that was my last memory of him. That's fucking genius. It's insane. And do you talk to him ever? Uh, he um, he like texts me a couple months back. No, a couple. I guess a couple years now. We have, we have not talked in a very long time. And because on startup, he basically is saying, "I'm you know my next company is in the works." Yeah. You know, I haven't heard anything of it. They do exist. Yeah. It's called Los Angeles Apparel. Um, I don't know how well it's doing. Um, I, you can't, he's such a hustler and a great, like, sort of natural marketer that he can, and salesman, that he could sell, like, ice to an Eskimo or whatever. So it could be, it could be going well, or it could be totally a figment of his imagination. I don't know. But he, he did do, it does exist. I've seen it. All right. Yeah. But, <laughs> but. Whether he's making all the same mistakes as he made before, uh, I would venture to guess, yes, he is. That's, yeah, he's a fascinating um, character. All right, so with the time I have left with you, I really, you know, it seems as though, as though, and I think you mentioned it on Tim Ferriss' podcast, he was sort of your first introduction to Stoicism or... A, Tim or was? A task that he gave you, something you were writing for him? Yeah, so I, I was actually introduced to Stoicism when I was in college, um, by uh, by Dr. Drew. Solid. I just saw him, by the way, out the other night. Really? The man is in incredible shape. Oh, yeah. Totally. He's, yeah, he's, he's got the yoked. whole silver fox thing going, and he is he is definitely ripped. Yeah. Uh, I just talked to him on the phone the other day. It's, it, so I went, when I was in college, I was at the college newspaper, and I got sent to this conference. It was in West Hollywood at this hotel. Like, Trojan Condoms had put together, like, a summit of college journalists. So it was like five or ten college journalists at a little thing and then dr drew was there he like talked to all of us so afterwards i because i was a huge loveline fan growing up uh and uh so i said you know hey because loveline on the west coast you can listen to at a normal hour right? it's like 10 to 12 or something right and so i was like um hey what book would you recommend like i, I love reading and you seem really smart like what book should i read and he told me to read Epictetus, who's one of the Stoic philosophers. And so I, that, that's what sent me down the whole path that changed my life, was that conversation. Um, and then now I've met him and we've like become friends and stuff. It's been really cool. But uh, So I, I, I found out about Stoicism through that. And obviously I, I read a lot of it. I did some work on it for Robert Greene, for books he was researching. And then I met Tim in 2007 and... That was something we'd connected over. And then in like 2009, he had me write an article about it for his website. That was 
that was my first time really writing about it at any big level. And this is totally me projecting. Okay. But did were you immediately attracted to it or did it did it uh how's the best anything like that for me where I've I've had this immediate attraction and, and devoted time and, and a big part of my life to something is because it answered questions that I'd been asking my whole life. Yes. Yes. So the first though I actually didn't read Epictetus first. First I read Marcus Aurelius and um I just whatever the tra- I, the translation I got was the right place, right time. And you read it, and there's this guy who's really successful, right? He's the emperor of Rome, and he's writing these notes to himself, and it just felt like he was talking like directly to me, mm. giving me the advice that I wish my dad had given me. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just really, it's like, here's why you shouldn't lose your temper. Man like, school. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Um, and so I remember I was reading it in the apartment that I lived in in college, and it was just like. Where has this been my whole life? Like, this is what I always wanted, you know, like clarity and simplicity and just like, here's how life should be lived. Would you say you were more, were you like a hole in the soul guy or were you just more of a seeker? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I think I was just, I think, I mean, like, obviously I went to church growing up and stuff and I just found, I was like, what is this? You know, like, I don't think I, I don't think I had any, I didn't have like my thing, you know? And this was like my thing. It was just like that, I'm on board with that. Yeah. Something to hang your hat on. Like, this is. Yeah. This is, yeah. This is, I agree. Like, this is, this is what, this is the best of like human wisdom. That's what I thought when I saw it. And. Can you give like, you know, I feel like for the layman, I have a little bit better knowledge than perhaps someone who's completely, um, you know, hearing about stoicism for their first time. Can you give the two minute? What's your version? What's your? Oh, shit. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't even know what to say. It's like it's ancient truths. It's things that we that are indisputable. Um you know, it's much like we were talking about the tenets of like meditation. It's being, it's like that Rumi quote where we need, we neither rejoice nor, um, uh, despair, despair. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's living in the middle. Yeah. No, that, so Tim, Tim has called stoicism, uh, uh, an operating system, which I think is a good sort of way it's. So when people think philosophy, they think like some complicated esoteric, you know, like, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation? You know, like, they don't think, they don't think more like a religion. Pragmatic. Tells you how to live. And that's what Stoicism was. Um, and it, Stoicism, the, the reason you can't say, like, this is what Stoicism is, is that we don't really know. We just have, like, books from a bunch of the Stoics, right? Like, we have Marcus Aurelius's diary. We have Seneca's letters. We have Epictetus's sort of lectures, but really, like, basically a Q&A. Um, and so my, the definition that I have is that a Stoic believes that we don't control the world around us, but we always control how we respond. And so, and that, and they believed we should respond with sort of the list of Stoic virtues, which would be like discipline and honor and excellence and wisdom and fairness and justice and temperance. You know, so, it, so it's like, it's sort of a list of, kind of really common sense, hard to disagree with traits. 
but it's this idea that like you the the world is sort of big and intimidating and it can totally knock you on your ass and so you want to be prepared for that and have a set of sort of really strong principles that you you use to determine how to react to that and what could you boil down like what the three or five like chief tenants are yeah um temperance wisdom justice um and probably sort of a f freedom from what they would call like the passions, right? So the idea of like, uh, you know, we think passion now is a good thing. Like I got to find my passion. But the Stoics, the passions were like envy and lust and greed and anger and fear and anxiety. Yeah, so, the deadly sins. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, it's sort of um, um, a, a, a reduction of the sort of destructive disturbing sort of forces that we all so when the reason people people when people hear the word stoic they think like doesn't have any emotions this that's not what it is at all um the stoics are saying that most people are whipped around by like really unhealthy emotions right right like you're anxious or you're afraid or you feel hatred or jealousy and they would say the the when you strip those things out, all that's left is you, and then you can be happy. I think that's right. And I, you know, that it, it, they're all excuses in my experience to retreat into resentment of the past or projection of the future. And it's an inability in which to be present. And if yes. we've learned anything, it's like this is the only moment we have is now and now and now. Yeah. And that's a very, very stoic idea, this idea of presence. And, and again, it's like, look, you can't change the past and you don't control the future. So all you really have is the present is what the, I think the Stoics would say. And so, yeah, so to me, obviously, I'd heard all those ideas before, right? But the idea of the emperor of Rome, like saying these things to himself was just very powerful to, you know, like a kid from the suburbs who had no background in philosophy. I was just like, that is legit and real to me. And I think that's why I liked it. And, and I, I, you know, I'm fascinated by it because, because inevitably it becomes a delivery system, right? In which it clicks in for you. Yeah. Because, you know, there are great, I'm sure Christians and Jews and Muslims and, and Buddhists who, who subscribe to these same tenets. It's just been delivered to them in a way that their mind could wrap themselves. Well, I think they do agree with all of it, except they're, all of it is contingent on the acknowledgement that Jesus or God said them, right? Or some version of a higher power. Yeah, and, and I think in a way Stoicism is, Stoicism is really saying, like, so a Christian says, like, don't sin or you go to hell. And I think a Stoic is saying, don't sin or you will feel like you're Shitty. in hell. Like that, you know what I mean? And so, yeah. so I think I like that because it wasn't telling me it wasn't telling me that I had to, there was no stretch or faith required. It's like, I agree. Whenever I do bad things, I feel bad about it. I don't like that feeling. Why? So, so that's, that was a really clear, logical way to, to explain sort of personal morality for me. And what's really interesting too is like Seneca and Jesus were born, as far as we know, in the same year. So the idea then of like, oh, this is equally ancient, but like, and I don't mean to be dismissive of, of Christianity at all, but like, you know, 
it's much easier for me to read the letters of this guy who was a politician and a playwright um, and a sort of wealthy guy in Rome sort of writing to his friend, um, you know, about this or this thing that he learned or giving this advice. That's much easier for me to swallow than, than you know, this guy who was born to a virgin who went around performing miracles, right. you know, and then rose from the dead and like... I, I just I have an easier time listening to Seneca than that story. And and it's it's interesting too because you know being with my wife who grew up Catholic and and you know 12 years of Catholic school and her family are like these wonderful people who I think the the religion part of it has been a big part of all their lives and yet like there's you know it they call the things that I feel just different names. Yeah. And I think when I've asked her certain things to that point of like, but do you believe in the literal yeah. like translation of this? Cause it seems a bit far fetched. She's like, no, Yeah, she's like, but I cross myself because it makes me feel better because this is a, a tradition that, that I've, I've grown up with. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I think like Pete Holmes talked about it on his podcast and I don't know whether it's Richard Rohr or, or, or who said it exactly, but it was something to the effect of like, like Emmett Fox writing, you know, sermons on the Mount and whatnot. It's sort of like, as it's been projected to me, like Jesus was this fucking enlightened brown skinned hippie okay. who was like walking around Bethlehem and hanging out with the prostitutes and very much like, let's just be accepting of all of it. Like, let's forgive. Let's take the money out of the church or out of the synagogue. Like, let's just kick it. It's all good. Sure. And and I think it was, I, I forget who said it, but it was like, if Jesus knew that we created a religion around him, he would be mortified. Yeah, or or that he we created um, a religion that makes people feel afraid or is a justification to be bad to other people, I think you would be very upset by that. Yeah. Um, definitely. Uh, just as I'm sure, look, the Stoic, I'm sure lots of people who are Stoics do bad things, <clears throat> you know, or fans of Stoicisms do bad things. Um, so there, there's always that, you know, disparity between theory and practice because we're humans. But um, it's really, uh, my next book's going to be a little bit about this where, like, the... Um, the overlap between at the core level what they're saying in Hinduism or Buddhism or uh, Confucianism or Stoicism or Christianity, it's in terms of like practical advice about, about like how to be a person, it's like all the same shit. It's all the same. Yeah. It's all be nice like your neighbor, like treat your neighbor like you would treat your it's like it because your neighbor like you are are me, I am you and there's really no Well, like you, you mentioned being present and and one of the my favorite Bible verses he says Jesus says um take no thought of tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. And it's it's like, "Oh yeah, you're right. Why am I worried about this?" I have no control over it. And so Jesus is saying, like, God's going to take care of it. And the Stoics are basically saying, like, we don't know if it's God or it's randomness, or they 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 called it the logos, um, which is the, the way, uh, the word. Um, they're like, it's out of your control regardless, so fucking relax. Right. So I like that, yeah. And is there is there room for higher power in Stoicism? Yeah, there's a, a quote, um, I'm forgetting who it's from, but he, he was saying that 
between basically Marcus Aurelius was sort of the the time when man stood alone like like this is as we we're saying sort of religion without Christianity or religion without God but at the same time there was Marcus Aurelius talks about the gods so it's just sort of transitionary period there are definitely there's definitely room for higher power the Christians certainly thought so there's a, a fake letter, it's probably not real, but between um, St. Paul and Seneca, which you can read. It's really interesting. Um, I, think, I think there's definitely room because at the, at, at the end of it, it's all about surrender. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's the same. Um, it's like in, 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 in 12 Step, it's, it's not that you have to admit that there's God. It's that you have to admit that you're not in charge. That's really what step two is about. Right. right is is and the and the hard that it's it's actually not that hard to do it but but people want to make it hard so they don't have to do it do you know what i mean right like it's a reason you're like when you're like well why are you saying that i have to acknowledge that there's a god that's you in being incapable of surrendering do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like using some sort of like intellectual fortitude yes. to keep yourself sick. Yes, and, and really, what it's about is just letting go. Just right. Period. Letting go. And so, I think whether you let go and you're giving it over to a very specific idea of a higher power. I mean, my theory is, and I, I, I sort of was an atheist for a long time, and I'm sort of coming around to being less sort of dogmatic about it. But my, it's like the the amount of randomness is you could call randomness God and it's the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Like I walk across the street and I get hit by a car. God did that or the fact that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time that happened, but it's the same fucking outcome. So what, what, what do I care what we call it? Are you familiar and, and forgive me if I butcher his name with Alain de Bosson? Uh, De Botan. De Botan. Yeah. And I heard him on Tim Ferriss' podcast. He's really great. And, you know, he was saying something to the effect of like, and I don't know if he was talking about Stoicism specifically, but, you know, much of like the major tenets. Yeah. He's like, the one thing that religion got right is the community aspect. Totally. And being woke to these things that you talk about, which I share and totally agree with. He's like, what it lacks is the communal aspect. Is yes. like having people in which that share in similar ideas to you know to band together with and be with and share ideas and yeah totally right I mean I created this thing called Daily Stoic and DailyStoic.com is like we do a daily email that goes out to I think it's probably the largest community of people who have been interested in Stoicism in history like if you think about how many people lived in Rome and then how many were Stoics we're probably bigger than that so it is cool to have this little community thing. Um, but it, it, yeah, it just pales in comparison to like walking into a cathedral and seeing, you know, just all of it there and knowing that like, there's this person who would do all these things. You know what I mean? Definitely philosophy lacks the community aspect because it intellectualizes, uh, an emotional, sort of deeper thing. And I think in a way that's what that's what recovery groups that's why they work. It's it's not yeah. the 12 steps could be complete gibberish. Do you know what I mean? Like they, there could be no scientific backing to any of the 12 steps, but it's that you have to go to this thing and be around these people that make it valuable. 
but inherently, if you look at like the way the 12 steps are broken down, you know, the first four steps are doing, or the first three steps are very much doing what stoicism is rooted in, right. is that, you know, no longer in charge, that life run on self-will is, you know, will lead you down the wrong path at every turn. Yeah. And then, you know, the next like six steps are basically like cleaning up the wreckage of your past that makes sure. you uncomfortable. Yeah. And then the next, and then the last three is just like, now with this new knowledge, continue to help others get out of self because self is at its root cause, the, all your discomfort and misery. Yeah. No, no, that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so last like two questions because right. I'm interested because I got a kid and or I, a kid on the way and you have one, so like my whole thing is like I want to give all of this stuff to my kid that okay. we're talking about, right? And religion puts it in a beautiful package, right? Or not a beautiful package, but something. It's good yeah. stories for the kids, yeah. you know, because it's all yeah. stories. How do you impart that well, early so on? Our, our son's only like 21 months, so it's not totally a thing yet. But you do. It's it's crazy. You you go like, should we start going to church? Like even even if you're an atheist, you're like, should we start going to some church of some kind? Give them values and yeah, which I think is probably like you said, it's just like a shortcut to doing what is your job. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's sort of how I think about it. So um, yeah, I don't I don't I don't know enough to speak authoritative authoritatively on it, but I think um, you you. The good, the good news is the stories that you're talking about, first off, you can learn them outside of a religious context, and they, there's lots of other examples of those stories. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. you can read your kid Aesop's fables, or you can read them, you know, any of the classic novels. Like, Harry Potter teaches a lot of these same lessons. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And so it's just, it's just your job to walk them through. Like, I mean... Uh, you turn on Mr. Rogers and you're like, this guy is going to do a way better job explaining this thing than I ever will. And like you're learning watching Mr. Rogers. So <laughs> right. you're just, yeah, you just, uh, I, I think, I think realizing that there are these sort of principles that you have to internalize and the earlier you internalize them, the deeper they'll go is like, is, is what we're sort of figuring out right now. And what about the idea that self-knowledge avails you nothing? in the respect of like that you can compile so much of, of this knowledge and awareness. And yet if it's not put into practice and maybe it's to the tenant you were talking about of the discipline idea of stoicism, like I know so many people that are um, self-help junkies. Yeah. They read all the books and they take all the fucking silent retreats and they fucking smoke ayahuasca out of a shaman's asshole in Peru. Right. And they're no better because when it comes down to it, they don't practice these things that they're aware of. So the most sort of famous Stoic uh, is Cato, um, who is the one who, who challenges Julius Caesar when Julius Caesar tries to make himself emperor of Rome or, or uh, make himself dictator. Um, the Stoics sort of hold him up as the greatest Stoic. And it's not because he wrote anything down. He, did, he wrote uh, one I think he wrote one book and it's like about agriculture. Like he didn't write it, basically he didn't write any philosophical things down. He only uh, lived in a philosophical way. And Socrates is the same thing. We only know about Socrates because of what his student Plato wrote about him, right? And so I think one of them, if, if I was sort of putting 
like the list of important things of, of stoicism, like the third or fourth tenet would be like, all of this matters, not theoretically, but practically. Like it, it's only about how you live. Like how do you apply it into your actual life? And so, um, yeah, that's like something I even wrestle with having been in American Apparel. It's like, did I, did I stay too long? Was I complicit in something that I shouldn't, you know, like it's all about actually apply. It's not just like, oh, this person's philosophical because they're very serene, you know, it's, it's, this person is a philosophical person because they're willing to do the right thing, even when it costs them a lot, or even when it's scary. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's ultimately about applying this stuff on the, not just applying it on a very real level personally, but, um, this isn't, this isn't just a philosophy designed to make you less anxious. It's supposed to make you a better person. Right. You know what I mean? It's supposed to make you, um, it's supposed to make, Marcus Aurelius is talking to you about ambition. So not so you'd be like, oh yeah, that's true. And then you go, you know, abandon your family to make more money, you know, or to become more famous. But to be like, what's really, you're supposed to read that and go, okay, what's really important in life? And then make hard decisions that maybe you'll never get credit for to be a good father or husband or whatever. And so it's something I think you struggle with and it's really hard, but that's, that's ultimately what it's about. Uh, As my buddy Billy says, a good life as a result of good living. Yeah. I mean, stoicism was supposed to be the, uh, the, the philosophers, they talk about the good life, like that's what that's why we're doing this you know what i mean to have a good life um and again not a good life so people remember you or so you have a large pile of money at the end but just like a good life because isn't that why you're trying to do all those things you know right totally dude thank you thanks for having me this is the best awesome that was it that was ryan my friend ryan holiday how about that right come on um go read his books his newest book conspiracy is outstanding i loved it it's all about nick denton and peter Thiel and their feud and how peter Thiel basically successfully brought down gawker and what a book it is go read it uh have a great week guys that's it what else do you need from me you want more all right i'll give you more i really can't stay baby it's cold outside I'm gonna, this song's going to get copywritten. Um, anyway, guys, I, I'm sorry I can't sing because I, I don't want to pay. I'm not going to share the money from this podcast with anyone. Take care, guys. Bye. <laughs>